Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 89. After Hours with Dr. Harry Lee Poe, Part 2. Welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where David, Andrew, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we've eavesdropped on Screwtape's letters and listened in on his toast. We then read The Silver Chair, but now we're just interviewing interesting guests. And last episode, we were joined by Dr. Harry Lee Poe, discussing his book, Becoming C.S. Lewis, a biography of young Jack Lewis. And today, he returns to discuss its sequel, The Making of C.S. Lewis, From Atheist to Apologist. If you're joining for this episode and you did not go to the first one, for some reason, maybe you stumbled across us just recently in this past week, and this is the first one you're hearing, check out part one. That's where I directly introduce him and we go into depth on the first of his three-part series. Uh, but now, without further ado, let us turn to his second book. Dr. Poe, welcome back to Pints with Jack for round two, where we get even further into C.S. Lewis's life. Thank you, Matt. This is a great conversation. I'm enjoying it. Well, we left off at the the perfect spot last episode because we learned so much about the pre-Malvern days, Waynard, his early childhood, Malvern, Kirkpatrick. And then, uh, listeners, if you remember, we talked about what was percolating with the books he was reading in the evenings and how was this impacting his Christian journey, which obviously wouldn't come until years later, but you start to see the foundations being laid. And so that's where we left off. We're going to pick that up here, but first we'll go through our quote of the week as usual. And if you guys remember, I mentioned that this connects very much to last week's quote of the week. It comes from the book. The story Jack loved was the journey to the end of the world for the one great thing worth giving up all else to acquire and then returning as a changed person. And if you listened to last week's episode, you remember Dr. Poe talking exactly about this at the very end of that episode as we were talking about the books from Fantasties or Fantasy... I'm probably saying that wrong, but um, The World at the Well's Ends, Fairy Queen, a few of these other stories. I'm trying to do them off the top of my head without looking at my notes, so I've probably said those wrong. But point is that journey was very much in there. And so that's what we'll be picking up on here today. So this book we're going to be talking about is, we were talking about becoming C.S. Lewis. Now it's the making of C.S. Lewis. And before we jump in and pick up where we left off, did you intend, we already learned that there's a lot of books you did not intend to write, but came about by the grace of God. Was this one of those that you did not intend to write? I did not intend to write this book. Um, after finishing uh, Becoming C.S. Lewis, I, I realized that, oh my goodness, we've left him a, a virulent atheist. <laughs> that, that sounds a bit incomplete for who the man was. And so I, I went back to Crossway and said, I'd really like to be able to show how his teenage years impacted his conversion and then his development as an apologist. Would it be possible for me to do a second volume that went from uh, the end of World War I to the end of World War II? And Crossway said, well, We'll let you do that if you'll agree to do the third volume. So, <laughs> so I agreed to do the third volume in order to do the second volume. So there are three books I did not intend to write. Oh, my goodness. That was sneaky and clever of them. I'm impressed. They, they were, they're so gracious. It's just such a great, great group of people. Well, so where we left off, it was it was the end of the Kirkpatrick era and, and beginning the entrance into the Oxford days. We've talked a bit about in the last episode, Lewis finding himself, Norse mythology, um, his Kirkpatrick days were very formative. How would you describe his early Oxford days uh, as, he was as he was returning from the war and the impact that that had on him? In his early Oxford days, uh, once he had survived the death machine of World War II, uh, I think something like 20 million people died in the war. And just this ghastly, ghastly situation. And, and literally, people would be writing about it for years. Dorothy L. Sayers, a uh, great Christian 
apologist and um, major detective novelist created the uh, her detective, Lord Peter Whimsey, who suffered uh, shell shock, what we would now call post-traumatic stress syndrome. And like so many others uh, who would have terrible nightmares for years and years and years. And um, surprise, C.S. Lewis was one of those people. Mm. Uh, Lewis suffered from nightmares um, for decades after World War I. Uh, Lewis returned from the war with a wound that uh, he was in convalescent. He was wounded in the beginning of uh, May 1918. He was not released from the hospital until Christmas Eve 1918. Not the hospital, but the convalescent center. Um, So it was very serious uh, injury. And they weren't able to really deal with it completely. He was a victim of um, shell fire from the British Army. This is part of the grand incompetence of, of the high command of the, uh, both the Allies and the Germans. Just a dreadful situation. So Lewis was shelled, and um, his father was greatly relieved to uh, hear that it was a, a British shell that got him because he was embarrassed that his son had been wounded in the back, which suggested cowardice, and he was fleeing from battle. So, so Albert was, oh, oh, wonderful. <laughs> this is grand news. He was shelled by his own army. Oh, um, that's good. I didn't, I didn't they, catch that. They did not remove all the shrapnel. Hmm. And so um, he suffered uh, physically. Uh, for 25 years and did not finally have the shrapnel removed until it was making its way toward his heart and lungs in World War II. And I think the surgery was maybe 1944. But it was about the time Tolkien was writing about Bilbo, who had a wound uh, with a broken off bit of of, uh, Mordor sword making its way toward his heart and uh, i i you know don't we don't have the smoking gun but the evidence suggests that tolkien got this idea from from lewis um you you can't be hard and fast on something like that but this is an interesting coincidence um if if it did not suggest itself to tolkien maybe further evidence dr diana glyer is correct that lewis did influence tolkien Oh, he definitely. Did. He definitely did. Um, so with that, he and a generation of of young men went to uh, went up to Oxford, having survived the war. In uh, surprised by joy, he refers to this period as the new look. So he was a fashionable young wag. Um, he was uh, devil may care. Uh, he was uh, a materialist. He um, uh, no longer had time for foolish ideas like joy. He knew that was just a psychological experience. And he did take up psychology in a a big way. He read a number of psychological uh, books and was, um, oh, self-analysis was all the rage. So he kept a diary from 1922 to 1927. And uh, we're glad that he did because we know so much about what he was thinking and what he was doing uh, during that period. We know what life was like on the domestic front. He was taking care of the mother of his comrade, Patty Moore, from officer training corps days. Mrs. Moore's daughter, Maureen, who was just a few years younger than Lewis, uh, so it was a it was a complicated time because he was trying to keep the relationship with Mrs. Moore and Maureen secret from his father, because his father was also funding Lewis's life, which um, would have been plenty of money for one young bachelor to live in Oxford in in college. But Lewis was having to pay rent for 
uh, Mrs. Moore and Maureen to have a, a, a rented flat and later a house. So it was a it was a complicated time. Um, he did not he was not involved much in college life because um, you, you're required in Oxford to live in college for a, a certain period, um, and once you've you've satisfied that requirement, then you can live in town. But so um, he was not active in college life. He would disappear for long periods of time, make it back at night by the time the, the, the great doors were locked. But he would spend part of every day with Mrs. Moore and Maureen, uh, usually the afternoons. They would have tea together. They'd talk, and then he'd go back. Um, once he'd satisfied the housing requirement in college, um, then he uh, lived with Mrs. Moore and Maureen, had room uh, a room in the apartment and finally in the in the house that they um, uh, rented in Headington. And his um, he was developing new sets of friends. And so all of his young friends were atheists. He does not mention them in any detail in Surprised by Joy, he, other than to make the comment, if Surprised by Joy were a real autobiography, he would have gone into great detail to talk about Leo Baker and and A.K. Hamilton Jenkin and uh, McFarlane and all the other friends that he had, but they didn't really enter into his conversion story. They were his best friends um, in being fashionable poets, and that was his great ambition. He wanted to be a poet, a uh, recognized poet, and none of them ever really succeeded in being great poets, Lewis included. Um, but through Baker, he made the acquaintance of uh, Owen Barfield, who was at another college, also interested in being a poet, and um, Barfield's friend Cecil Harwood. Baker finally decided he was going to be an actor, and um, Owen Barfield decided he was going to be a dancer, professional dancer. And so um, it, it's sort of comical to see how they were uh, trying out, oh, what am I going to be when I grow up? Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's the sort of thing you expect from college students. They, they're yeah. all over the place. They change majors two or three times. So it was it's just typical. Uh, and he was active in several groups. So he was in uh, part of the philosophy group and would write papers. And he was part of the Martlet's Literary Club, and they would write papers. So he was, he was, he was thinking and writing and trying to make a name for himself um, in Oxford and um, trying to make acquaintance of people who would help him. When he finished his philosophy degree in 1922, he tried desperately to get a teaching post at Oxford and failed at every turn. And um, was persuaded that his best route would be to do another degree so that he was more marketable, so that he could teach in more than one area. And so he, uh, he did an English degree in one year. He was able to do it because he had done all of the reading in his spare time as a teenager at W.T. Kirkpatrick's home in the evening. He'd read something like 200 books while he was there. Um, so he knew all the literature of the medieval period and, the, and of course, Shakespeare and the, the 18th century, the 19th century. He'd read it all. So he was able to do that degree in, in a year. When he finished, a great opportunity arose because his old philosophy tutor had agreed to do a teaching engagement in the United States. Uh, which Oxford dons like to do because Americans just paid lavishly to have an English accent on campus for a year. <laughs> and so uh, that's still the case, by the way. Um, and so he, he went to the United States and they needed someone to fill in for them for a year. And they got Lewis to fill in for a year. Now, during that year, his big intellectual problem was values. He'd gotten this from his love of the quest story, the journey story, 
in which the the person, the knight, uh, was gallant and and noble and courageous, um, devoted to duty and sacrifice. And um, usually there was a lady involved, um, the great lady, for whom you would sacrifice all for her honor and uh, to rescue her from, you know, the damsel in distress who needed um, protection. And, and so he loved this story so much and he'd, he'd bought into the values and he'd come to the place that the values must exist right and wrong are real, only how can they be real? How is that possible? And his great intellectual task was to make a case for values without the existence of God. It was a huge problem for him. He prepared two sets of lectures that he delivered uh, the year he was teaching philosophy for University College. And both of them dealt with this problem of ethics and morality. And how could you have ethics and morality without there being a God? And he painted himself into a corner because he couldn't, he couldn't do it. And there had to be something. He wasn't really well, willing to call it the God of the Bible. But there had to be something, something behind the universe. If you want a detailed explanation of his thought process, read the first two sections of Mere Christianity. Because in Mere Christianity, he's actually not constructing an argument for the existence of God. He's explaining the thought process by which he eliminated all possibilities until he was stuck with God. He wasn't arguing for the existence of God. He was hemming himself in. Um, and so that's uh, that's essentially the process he was going through. Um, he, um, his friend Owen Barfield and um, Barfield's roommate Cecil Har Harwood both became anthroposophists. Now, anthroposophy is a, um, a quasi-religion, quasi-philosophy developed by Rudolf Steiner, who had begun as a theosophist uh, and changed from theosophy to anthroposophy. So theosophy is wisdom from God. Anthroposophy is wisdom from humans. And it's an evolutionary theology, an evolutionary philosophy. The idea that the human race is evolving toward a higher spiritual plane. And so Jesus and the Buddha and um, Muhammad would be examples of people who um, had superior spiritual evolution uh, toward uh, uh, deity, towards a heavenly being. He didn't have trouble uh, acknowledging the resurrection because this is a sign of uh, advanced evolution. And it also included the idea that uh, the whole human race has a collective imagination. So Barfield uh, had no Christian background. Lewis, remember, was raised in the church. His, the, he attended the church where his grandfather was the rector. So knew, Lewis knew lots of Bible as an atheist. But uh, Barfield and Harwood did not have that same background. So this, this was all new religion for them, and it suited uh, Barfield. But Barfield was determined that Lewis would join them in anthroposophy. And so they carried on a, a lengthy debate when they were together and, and in the mail, because by this point, Barfield had moved to London, was working in his father's law office, and um, was outside of the orbit of, of Oxford. It, it had the inverse effect on Lewis. Rather than convincing Lewis of anthroposophy, he tended to, Lewis was critiquing the argument and arriving at entirely different conclusions. And the conclusion he was drawing was, no, there really is only one God, 
and we are not it. He and Barfield would part ways at that point theologically, and they would never really discuss theology again. Lewis just refused to discuss theology with Barfield and, and Harwood um, once he became a Christian and really didn't have much to say in that short period between becoming a theist and becoming a, a Christian. Um, he finally just had to reluctantly confess, oh, great, there's a God. <laughs> <laughs> the most reluctant, most convert. reluctant convert. Oh, how inconvenient. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and after, it's interesting, after reading yeah, your first book, uh, part one on the becoming C.S. Lewis, I don't think I realized how much of an atheist he was. And it makes more sense after going through that, what he meant by the most reluctant convert. It, it fully became clear to me from that book. God is... is um so inconvenient, you know, these expectations. And and it's one thing having a God who is out there somewhere, that's bad enough. But a God who's here is just dreadful, always getting in the way, always underfoot, always looking over your shoulder. You just can't get away from it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So this is all happening, if I'm correct, uh, at a time when there's a lot going on now, because if I if I got the chronology right, which I'm probably as bad as Lewis is from your book, but um, he's becoming a fellow at this time. We have this theistic conversion happening, father's death meets Tolkien. There's a lot going on. The coal, coal biter group, I hope I said that right, is going on. So it seems like this is a very pivotal moment and Lewis is just continuing to find himself and his life to shape together. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So I nailed you it. You got it. <laughs> yes, he, um, he gets a full-time teaching job at Maudlin College in 1925. He's going to teach English literature. And oddly enough, they, <laughs> they, they do a lot with young, young fellows. Um, he was also teaching some political science. Was he really? <laughs> yes, as well as some philosophy, a little of this, a little of that. And, um, you know, the, the teaching is not like in an American university. Uh, the tutorial involves a single student coming to the uh, teacher's rooms for an hour once a week. Um, they read an assigned essay and the tutor interrupts them, corrects them, um, supplements what they've said, questions them. So each essay is like a, is a term paper and an oral final exam all at the same time. It's an absolute terror. And um, the term lasts for eight weeks. So you write eight term papers in the course of a term. And uh, Lewis would do would meet with students uh, pupils excuse me pupils <laughs> um, uh, five days a week and some on Saturday as well it wasn't eight hours a day it was probably about five or six hours a day with pupils and he had to be paying attention listening to drivel and trying his best to correct it <laughs> so he was doing that. Um, uh, so he's in the English faculty and remember Oxford involved, gosh, how many colleges in those days, 35 or 40 colleges, each a freestanding college. Um, and the university, if you go to Oxford, the, the town, there is no campus. You can't find the campus of Oxford university. The university owns several buildings. They own the Bodleian library. They own the Sheldonian Theater. Um, they own the Examination Schools building and a few other place, bits of property. Uh, but the colleges uh, each have their own dining hall, their own living space. They share, though, the degree. The colleges do not grant a degree. The university, all the faculty together, grant the degree. They don't have... Uh, tests every semester. You only have one test at the end, and all you have to know is everything. <laughs> and so there's a high suicide rate 
in Ooh. Oxford, which is a sad part about it. Lots, yeah. lots of pressure. You have to know everything. So Lewis is a part of the English faculty, which means he would meet with English tutors from all the other colleges, and they together would put together the syllabus, what everybody needs to know, has to know. And uh, the same year that Lewis became a fellow at Maudlin College, J.R.R. Tolkien became the professor of Anglo-Saxon over at um, Pembroke College. And um, they met at a faculty meeting, and Lewis wasn't particularly impressed with Tolkien. He said, well, he's... he's, uh, not such a bad fellow, nothing that a good whack wouldn't fix. <laughs> so, so, but... Um, that sounds like, so th- we have to remember, this is Lewis still not converted to Christianity, so that's a comment is, he would totally make. <laughs> totally, exactly, exactly. But Lewis discovered that Tolkien was interested in Norse mythology, and Tolkien started a, a group to learn Old Icelandic. Well, Lewis had always wanted to learn Old Icelandic. He'd been teaching himself, but he didn't know how to pronounce it. And so, oh, you know, wouldn't this be fun? Let's all go learn That's exactly what I'm thinking right now. It's been a life dream of mine. (laughs) Yeah. And so the group was the Kolbitars, or the Kolbitar. Um, I think that's a pronunciation, but you'll you'll get half a dozen pronunciations, Um, which means which translates into English pretty close, coal-biter, which means a bunch of old men who sit so close to the fire that they could bite the coals in the fire. And um, and so it included um, Neville Coghill, who mm. uh, Lewis had met and was impressed to learn that Coghill was a Christian. And he couldn't understand it because Coghill was so intelligent and he knew so much about literature and everything. And how could anyone this smart be a Christian? The other thing that struck him is, was that Coghill seemed to embody all of those virtues that Lewis admired but did not have. And uh, that just baffled him. So they got to be friends. And Coghill actually helped Lewis publish his second book, Dimer which is his epic story of someone going on a great quest, only Dimer doesn't quite work because he's not sure what he's on a quest for. <laughs> <laughs> he's only halfway through understanding what the true journey is. And, and, and not only that, he doesn't come back. He isn't changed. He doesn't come back. He dies. What? And, um, so, which is a very Norse story. Mm. There are no happy endings in the Norse mythologies. They're all grim. There is no hope in Norse theology with the Norse gods. There is no hope. So bear that in mind. Uh, Mm -hmm. So uh, Tolkien and and Lewis strike up a, a friendship over Norse mythology. They start meeting on Monday mornings and... After talking about it for a while, Tolkien finally shows to Lewis something he's been writing. And Lewis is the first person uh, Tolkien shares the world of Middle Earth with. And Lewis is charmed. He's taken with it. This is fabulous. This is wonderful. And this is the sort of thing he had hoped for from Arthur Greaves that Arthur never could quite deliver. And in a sense, the same sort of thing he'd hoped for from Barfield. Barfield had, had aspired to a literary career, but just never, never quite made it. And so here's somebody who's different. So their friendship deepens. Um, and along with, uh, with Tolkien comes Hugo Dyson, who is also a friend of Coghill. Coghill and Dyson were at Exeter College as undergraduates when Lewis was at University College as an undergraduate. Shall we fast forward to the Addison Walk? Let's do it. Okay, so uh, time passes, a few years. We're now in the late 1920s. While he's having his great war with 
Owen Barfield over anthroposophy. He's also having his wonderful conversations on Norse mythology with Tolkien, who also, most aggravatingly, is a Christian. (laughs) And along comes Hugo Dyson, and he too, for crying out loud, is a Christian. Well, Lewis invites Dyson and Tolkien to dinner one night at Magdalen College. This is in September, late September, just before the term begins. The uh, Oxford school year begins um, first week of October. Um, And so this is late September. In an Oxford college, dinner takes forever because it's multiple courses and there's conversation and you don't gobble your food. You... Uh, you enjoy it along with the conversation. So multiple courses. And finally, after um, the meal is done, everyone retires to the senior commons room. We would say the faculty lounge in this country, but faculty lounge is such a a pedestrian concept. Mm -hmm. There, it's a great room with a fireplace and oak paneling and grand leather-covered chairs and antique furniture and oil paintings. And they, there they'll have their, their port and uh, they'll have their coffee and they'll have their cigars or their pipes. And they'll, so after dinner, uh, that will drag out for another hour uh, or, or two. And so finally, after all of that was done, Lewis and Tolkien and Dyson went over to Lewis's rooms, talked a little bit, and then went for a walk on Addison's Walk. Now, this is Magdalen College, one of the grand colleges of Oxford, which means they've got lots of property and lots of money. And um, the property includes their own herd of reindeer and enough real estate for the reindeer to graze, and uh, this area right along the river Cherwell, just before it enters the the um, the Isis, okay, the Isis. Uh, <laughs> below Oxford, it's called the River Thames. Above Oxford, it's called the River Thames. But as it flows through the city of Oxford, suddenly it's no longer the Thames; it's the Isis. So you just have to understand. Oxford has its own universe. Um, (laughs) And uh, the Cherwell is a little river that flows into uh, the Isis right there. Um, It runs by Magdalene and then past Christ Church uh, Meadow. Those who've read Wind in the Willows uh, might be interested to know that Mr. Toad's great house is on the river Cherwell, um, just upriver from Magdalene. So there they are, walking around the grounds and this big circle, about a mile, I would say. Um, might not be that long. Feels like that long when you walk it. Um, known as Addison's Walk. Who was Addison? Well, he was somebody who took a walk. Um, <laughs> and as they walked, they talked about mythology and, and religion and Christianity. And Lewis said that... Um, He loved the story of the dying and rising God. You just found it in religions all over the world. Among the Egyptians, it's Osiris. Among the Canaanites, it was Baal. Among the the Norse, it was Baldur. Among uh, the Greeks, it was Dionysus. And so you've got this dying and rising God And he loved the story. He said he loved the story everywhere he read it except in the New Testament. (laughs) How convenient. (laughs) Yes. He didn't like it there. It was too close to home there. He said he believed in God, but he just didn't see the point of this dying and rising business. What did that? He just didn't see how that had anything to do with him, and it just didn't make any sense. In fact, he'd been reading uh, of Anselm's theory of the atonement, which um, uh, was a great stumbling block to him. The the Anselm's theory was um, uh, God's honor had been offended and uh, someone had to make up for it. Adam had failed. 
Adam was his defender and Adam had failed in his battle with, with Satan. And so um, until somebody could make up for it, God's honor was offended. And, and, and Anselm's theory is interesting because he, he develops the entire theory without any reference to scripture. Um, it's all based on the medieval feudal system of, of uh, the, the great Lord and the, the duty done to the due to the great Lord. So it, it was an obstacle to, to Lewis, he, that, that particular theory, and he'll, he'll discuss it in uh, Mere Christianity about the difference between theological theories and the actual um, fact of the atoning death and the uh, difference between what we say about it and the fact of it happening. Um, but anyway, in the, in the course of the conversation, uh, Lewis said, I began to realize, or they, I, they helped me understand that um, the big difference between the dying and rising of Christ and the dying and rising of all of these mythological gods, this, uh, with Jesus, it was the myth that actually happened. And that all of these other myths, he would he would uh, come to see them as uh, as in fact the um, dreams that God gave to different cultures. He, he'll use that kind of terminology: good good dreams, good dreams. He'll use that in um, the problem of pain, maybe, and in mere Christianity, uh, uh, that the stages of religion. He, uh, he touches on it, I think, in miracles, too. But anyway, um, that really struck him, the idea that this is the time it actually happened. And he mulled that over in his head, and a few days later, while riding to the Whipsnade Zoo with his brother Warney, um, uh, Warney had a motorcycle with a sidecar, and Lewis jogging along in the sidecar, not really thinking about it. But in Surprised by Joy, he tells us, when he left Oxford, he didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And when he arrived at the Whipsnade Zoo, he realized that he did believe Jesus was the Son of God. And um, it was like waking up. Praise um, be to God. Suddenly you realize you're awake. Yeah. So it is an example, uh, something we we can easily forget in this modern world in which we live with so much technology and so many uh, amazing technical advances that um, the supernatural is round about us all the time. That conversion is a supernatural event. There is a God who does exist, who is right at our elbow all the time. And, um, so that, that's one thing I get out of Lewis's life story is his, his willingness to talk about that. And it's something I think um, Christians have largely forgotten how to share their testimony, mm-hmm. how to talk about their own faith in a way that is natural and normal without seeming weird, that um, the supernatural is part of this universe. It's easy to forget, too, and I struggle with this because I love evangelizing, I love apologetics, that it doesn't all fall on your shoulders. That's pride and arrogance. Like if I meet someone else, recognize that God's using me, hopefully, as an instrument and a tool in this process. But my responsibility is most likely not to get the person from zero to 60. God's doing that. He might use me for a little piece of it, and then he'll use someone else. And that's, you got to let go of that process. Uh, What you've said is so important. The Holy Spirit does all the heavy lifting. Yes, he does. And and if you wanted to convince somebody of the truth of the gospel, you couldn't do it. (laughs) He reserves to himself the exclusive right to convince of sin, righteousness and judgment. I mean, he's just that's his area. (laughs) He does. He does conversion. We we do faithful witness. And uh, sometimes we're there when somebody believes. Uh, He told um, Dorothy L. Sayers that um, uh, some non-Christians had played a part in his own conversion. And he was referring to Barfield at that point, that um, Barfield certainly wasn't trying to make a Christian out of him, but he had inadvertently (laughs) (laughs) nudged him in that direction 
away from anthroposophy. So the it's, Holy it's, Spirit was trying through Barfield. <laughs> yes, it's just amazing. It, I mean, it really is amazing. And using that word amazing, there's so few things that amaze us in this world of cell phones and apps. To be amazed is a wonderful thing. Uh, a couple questions after that is we... To be respectful of your time, though, to keep it to those is um, how does Lewis go from this conversion? Because I thought this in your story, uh, in the when I was reading the book, he goes so fast from converting to being able to write some of the most incredible apologetics <laughs> works. Like I'm like, how did this happen so quickly? Yes. Well, I think that's one of the funny things about it. I don't know. Funny. Yes, I think funny is good. I think funny is um, an amazing uh, bit of grace that that God gives us humor. Mm -hmm. Um, So here's here's Lewis, a committed atheist and step by grudging step moving towards theism and what's he doing while he's moving from materialism to idealism to theism to Christianity? He's trying to make a name for himself. Hmm. He's presenting papers, he's writing articles, and he's writing his big book, The Allegory of Love. Now, The Allegory of Love, he's counting on that to make his reputation, and it did. It made him suddenly one of the the great stars uh, of of literary criticism in the world. And uh, the book's still in print. Academic books don't stay in print. (laughs) More than three years. I mean, (laughs) it's just a truism. And the thing is still in print. And if you study, if you're going to do any work in... um, medieval, allegorical, courtly love poetry, and granted, that's not most of us, (laughs) you have to deal with Lewis. Hmm. You can disagree with him, but you have to deal with him. Um, Okay, so he's writing this book. Now, it covers the period from Virgil during the reign of Augustus, the first emperor, first century, remember there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be tacked. So this is the beginning of the Christian story. And that's when allegory really begins. It's hot off the press when Paul uses it in the very first New Testament book, Galatians, the, the allegory of, um, of uh, Sarah and Hagar the allegory of the two mountains. So this is brand new. And it lasts in the Western tradition for 1,500 years. Um, The last poetic great allegory is the fairy queen, the Mm -hmm. 1590s. But for the modern world, the greatest allegory was written a few years after that by John Bunyan, The Pilgrim's Progress. Okay, so here's our our young atheist writing this book. To understand allegory, he has to master patristic theology, that is the theology of the early church up to Augustine. Then he has to master the theology of Augustine, which is the theology of the early Middle Ages. Then he has to master the theology of Thomas Aquinas, give for a year 1250, um, the theologian of the high Middle Ages, in order to understand the literature. Does that make sense? It does. He has, he has to know Christian theology to understand the literature produced by Christians. Wow. So he's mastered all of that. And remember, he knows the Bible. He's gone to church every Sunday growing up so he can quote all sorts of Bible verses. You know, he's he's an atheist fully inoculated against religion. He knows all of this Bible, and now he knows the theology prior to the Reformation. 
because he's ending in the high middle ages. Got that? Uh-huh. And this is why he appeals to Orthodox, Catholic, Calvinists, Arminians, all the all the divisions that occurred later because Lewis's theology really comes from an earlier period in the church. Okay, so he's got all of this information. Now he doesn't believe any of it. <laughs> You know, it's just information. <laughs> to help him to his end goal, you mentioned, of to making make, a name for himself. <laughs> to make a name for himself. I love it. So here he's busy trying to make a name for himself, and the Holy Spirit is busy. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> the rug out from under him. <laughs> oh, I hope there's areas in my life like this where my arrogance is leading me to do something, but in reality, the Holy Spirit's using it. Oh, it's so funny. And so here he is saved, gloriously, reluctantly saved. Um, And so he's a Christian, and he's serious about it. I mean, he's actually changed. And you see that the C.S. Lewis we know from all of his writings and from his attitudes and his generosity and giving away you know, he's like he's like Barnabas. He's giving away all of his money. Everything he makes off his, his writings, he's giving it away. Um, and uh, material possessions no longer mean to him what they once did. Um, but that means that all of a sudden, he can be an apologist. Because... First of all, he knows why he did not believe in Christianity. And he knows how all of those stumbling blocks were cleared away in his own life. And he now understands Christian theology from the inside, not just the information, but now a sanctified spirit. It's impacted him. It means something to him. He understands it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but we have the mind of Christ. Mm. And so um, so all of a sudden, he can write uh, The Pilgrim's Regress, which, <laughs> granted, is for a very narrow audience of people who understand <laughs> allegory. Um, but from that, he can go on and write things like uh, Out of the Silent Planet, uh, Again, latent Christianity, the, 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 the idea is there, it's, it's present. He laughed later and said that out of over 30 book reviews of um, Out of the Silent Planet, only two of them realized that it, <laughs> any of it had to do with Christianity. And no it, way. It's, yes, and it's a, a sign that the culture had become so secular that there was no recognition. And that's where we are today. We're in a thoroughly secular culture and our churches model, you know, so many churches model themselves off of uh, Saturday night live Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's an entertainment model or a CEO corporate model. There's not a, it's not a biblical model. So we're, 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 we're so secularized that, uh, and so generally ignorant of, Christian scripture, Christian tradition, Christian doctrine, that it's all new. So the fields are white under harvest. We just need to get at it. Take a lesson from Lewis. Mm-hmm. I love that answer. And I think that is a perfect segue into, you said you're going to write a third book. Where would pick off, pick up from this book? And what do you anticipate being in that book? Well, that third book was finished in March. Oh, and, it's done. Uh, yeah, it's done. Crossway has it, and they're beginning the editing process. So it will go from the end of World War II till the end of Lewis's life. And um, a lot happens then. Um, <laughs> yes. He's famous. He doesn't like being famous, and he loves being famous. 
because he's still dealing with his problem with pride and he knows it and it's a regular problem for him and he fears that uh, maybe he's lost his gift for writing and oh this book didn't do very well and that's good for me that it didn't do very well because I needed um, a little humility and so he's he's struggling with um, what to him is still a problem it's not evident to the people around him, but it's evident to him. Things change after the war. Uh, Charles Williams dies. He was a great friend of his for just five years during the war, uh, living in Oxford. Um, during Lewis's, uh, in many ways, the most important productive period in his non-academic writing. So The Allegory of Love is the great academic book out of which so many other things come. But his non-academic writing, during, during the war, he does The Problem of Pain, uh, the radio broadcast that become Mere Christianity, um, The Abolition of Man, The Screwtape Letters, um, The Great Divorce. Um, he writes uh, Paralandra and uh, That Hideous Strength and uh, Miracles. Jeez. All during the war, when he's ev almost every week is out and about uh, traveling to um, RAF bases to speak to the troops. Hmm. Um, and during the war years, he has to pick up some extra work at the college because they're understaffed. Some of the younger fellows have gone off to uh, do war work. So the workload increases, and yet he's he's more productive. Um, so it's a fascinating period. Um, Another grace from the Holy Spirit, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah, yeah. He 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 has he has the grace to do what he needs to do. Uh -huh. Yeah. During this whole period, um, he and his brother Warney buy a house in 1930, along with Mrs. Moore. She has a small inheritance from her brother who died. She is married. She's not a widow. She's not a divorcee. Her husband lives in Ireland. She refers to him as the brute. He sends her a little money sometimes. They are estranged. Uh, Warney and Jack inherit a little money from their father. They're, they thought he was loaded, but as it turns out, he spent virtually everything he had, and they should have realized that because he was subsidizing both of his grown sons uh, into their thirties, <laughs> you know, so, you know, you, you see those, those folks who say I'm spending my children's inheritance. <laughs> Quite eligible bachelors. They must've been. <laughs> he was giving them their inheritance year by year. So there wasn't much money. They, there was the house to sell, but he died right at the beginning of the depression, 1929. Mm. And so, values plunged and so they just got a, a, a fraction of what they should have realized for this magnificent house. I mean, it's a big old house. Um, so they bought this um, property in Headington, a suburb of Oxford. Um, it's about, what was it, 10, 10 acres or so, 10 or 11 acres, maybe something like that. Um, it's industrial property. It's it's not an estate. It's a brickyard. It's the ruins of a brickyard, the old warehouse, two big old brick kilns, and the caretaker's cottage. Well, they're they're going to live in the caretaker's cottage, but it's it's not an estate. It's industrial <laughs> property. Um, so it's a funny funny situation. And when Lewis first met Mrs. Moore, she was in her early forties. Uh, vivacious and charming and effusive and but remember the literature he's reading and that he's in love with the knight who comes to the rescue of the damsel in distress and sacrifices all to do the noble deed got that plot mm -hmm. that is the plot of lewis's life from the end of world war one when he begins to take care of Mrs. Moore until she dies in 1951. 
And she gets crotchetier and crotchetier and crotchetier. And um, his diary and his brother Warney's diary um, describe how peculiar she got and how irrational she was and how demanding and how miserable life was at the kilns. Well, it all gets worse after World War II. Um, life at the kilns is dismal. And he, he has a f- several friends that he talks to about it. Not, he doesn't talk to the Inklings about it. They're his literary friends. They're his writing club. But um, Sister, Penelope, uh, Sister Penelope is a nun in an Anglican order, a Church of England um, order of nuns, the convent of St. Mary, just a few miles from Oxford in Wantage, a little village about, oh, I don't know, 10 miles from Oxford. And he describes to her the difficulties uh, that Jane is having. And that's her her name. She was known as Janie Moore, but he refers to her as Jane. And he speaks of her as his mother. And um, in, in many ways, she, she did fulfill the, 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 the part of mother to him all those years after his own mother died. And he certainly treated her as a mother and Maureen as a sister. But life was miserable. Um, Mrs. Moore could not tolerate disobedience to her commands. And she had her own way of running a household. And she couldn't keep a maid or a cook. They would last a short time and, and leave. And, and uh, Lewis would talk about the fact that he, his was an unhappy life, uh, an unhappy house full of bickering and argument and that sort of thing. So it was, it was um, hard on him. So this second book begins with that kind of misery or that part of his life begins with that sort of misery. But it ends with great happiness with his marriage to Joy Gresham, Mm. only to be followed by her death. And so this painful sorrow, uh, this this happiness he had, and then followed by her death. So it's a it's a um, there's plenty of drama in that last part of his life. Well, I'm excited for that. When when can we look forward to that coming out? Uh, It'll be out next um, May or June. Okay. So this. The second book came out the first part of uh, of June, and uh, the next one a, a year later. That's fantastic. Well, we're going to have to have you on so we can interview you for that one before it comes out. Prop the listeners. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, where can, as we wrap this up, where can people learn more about you, um, purchase the books? Obviously, Amazon's probably a pretty good spot, but um, where can yeah, they find out more Amazon's about you? Amazon's probably the most reliable, <laughs> but you're, I, I, I urge you to look at your local bookstore if you have a local bookstore and uh, support those people who are making uh, local books available to us. So. Excellent. And do you have like any websites or any social media presence they can go check well, out? Well, I, I do run... Um, Along with Don King, the noted Lewis scholar, and he's uh, done so much on, on Lewis and his poetry, and is uh, finishing a biography of Warney. He's written biographies of Joy and Ruth Pitter. Um, uh, he and I run the Inklings Fellowship. We do a retreat every year at Montreat, and every third year uh, at Oxford, our next one in Oxford will be next summer, we have a website. Um, www.inklingsfellowship.org and so um, love to have some of your listeners join us uh, in Montreat in the spring up in the uh, Smoky Mountains or in Oxford uh, 2022 July of 2022 for a, a week we're going to talk about the Inklings in the Bible next summer well there's there's a decent chance I go to the Oxford one either way but it's looking even more likely because I have a trip planned to Oxford for the end of July and the UK seems to not want to lift the quarantine restrictions from the US and I booked it. Honestly, just hoping with the vaccination efforts that they would lift that before July 20th when my flight leaves to 
uh, England. And it's looking less and less likely as the days progress. And so if that definitely, if that happens, I will a hundred percent be there the next summer. <laughs> oh, that'd be great to see you there. Maybe that's the Lord's way and Holy Spirit of saying, nope, you're going next summer, not this summer. Well, we've got some grand folks lined up. Um, Alistair McGrath will be with us. Mm. Colin Durier, Judith Wolf. Um, that's a great lineup. Yeah. And, um, uh, so, um, hope you can come. Oh, well, that's fantastic. Uh, well, Dr. Bo, thank you so much for taking, um, so much of your time and sharing it with our listeners and your wisdom more importantly, uh, and, and walking us through Lewis's life to his conversion. That was absolutely incredible. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts for being on here. Matt, thanks for inviting me. It's been a great time. Oh, absolutely. And listeners, go definitely purchase those books, Becoming C.S. Lewis and The Making of C.S. Lewis, both fantastic. You got a taste here, but they go way more in depth. We, we skim the surface of some of the key highlights, but it goes way deeper. And so check those out. And as always, guys, join us on our next episode when we'll be going farther up and farther in. Cheers. <laughs>